Well, it's very lovely to be here uh, again this evening, and um, it's been uh, marvelous to see the uh, interest and um, response to these this little series of of classes, these sessions. So um, it, prompts, it prompts me to think that these are uh, useful, helpful to people. Maybe this is a completely different group of faces every week, but I don't think so. <laughs> um, so the, the theme of this evening, I brought my piece of paper along to remind me this time. <laughs> was, um, this is the third of these, and uh, the theme is, What do I do now? And um, so uh, contemplating this, um, this element of, uh, of compassion in action, uh, I thought I'd try and address that this evening in a, in a, uh, from a, a few different ways. Uh, by the way, the, uh, the pattern for these evenings is that I give a little bit of an introductory talk at the beginning uh, for about half an hour, and then we have a period of guided meditation, and there's a half an hour uh, at the end for, for discussion and questions and so forth. So I'll try just to introduce a few themes, a few principal themes, and then we'll have the rest of the evening to, to explore that. So the, uh, this element of uh, what do I do now is um, uh, presuming that uh, in the first couple of classes we, we had covered you know, what is the nature of compassion and, and some techniques to, to generate that then this is really to do with, well, how do I apply those principles? And uh, I thought particularly this evening to dwell on uh, and focus things around decision-making or, or what, how do I make choices about what to do and what to not to do? Because now we've, we've aroused this wonderful, you know, infinite compassion for all beings. It's like, oh, now there's a large market <laughs> <laughs> of uh, where that can be deployed, you know, and infinitely large, broad field of, of you know, good, useful things to be done. And uh, so how do we decide um, what's the right thing to do, how to do it, when to do it, uh, if to do it, uh, and so forth. So the first thing I, I thought I'd like to address is um, the, a kind of mythology that e e exists uh, in the um, uh, group psyche of, of today, particularly here in the West, particularly here on the West Coast. And, uh, and it's, uh, it's hard to describe exactly what it is, but it's, it's a sort of mixture of, uh, of um, New Age, Hinduism, fatalism, um, uh, and uh, a, with a, a healthy twist of um, a kind of Judeo-Christian, God has a plan for me. That's a large word to kind of have all strung together, but it's it's all of that. It's like that there is a uh, there is a right path for me in life. There is a thing that I am supposed to be doing, and all I've got to do now is find out what that thing is, and then when I find it, then everything's going to be all right. It's like uh, if any of you have ever um, tried to use a metal detector to track um, pipelines underground. Or, or finding wires in, in a wall, or um, we have a little gadget that someone gave us at the monastery, which is a, a stud detector. 
you know, to find out where are the studs under your sheetrock. And so there's, some, there's been some pretty creative building techniques employed in Mendocino County. We've employed a few ourselves. So. so sometimes it can be, you know, you have this little gadget that so you're trying to, running it up and down the wall, trying to find out where the studs are so you can nail into them. And, and then, it, and then it's every, every time you, 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 you find where the stud is, and it bleeps to you. So we some, sometimes we feel like there's this, there's this track, my true path in life, the thing I should be doing now. And that with our little detector, our little sort of path detector, we want, we're waiting for it to sort of beep, 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 beep. Oh, here it is. That's my right path. You know, and then, then it goes quiet. Oh, it's definitely wrong. You know, I should be getting some beeps here. And, and so it's similar to the right path, the right thing for me to be doing, and, sim- uh, oh, and very strongly in terms of... Um, Things like relationships and career, you know, the, the, the one for me, you know, where is she or he? Or, and that I know there is the right one for me, but, you know, he's out there somewhere, but we just haven't met yet, or she's, she's waiting, she knows, that she's there. I just have to find her. Now, where is she? <laughs> so that we have this um, uh, idea that there is this, this sort of one true thing for me to be doing, one right way. For, uh, to act in a situation. And I might be exaggerating a little bit and generalizing, but I think by the, there's a, there seems to be a certain familiarity with this <laughs> mind state, right? This is, this is not un, uh, unfamiliar to us. So then um, what happens is that we, as most of us know, is that we, we tie ourselves to that idea. Like there's a right thing that I should be doing. And that then when... Um, we are um, faced with a situation that then we're or, or then like, well, should I do this? Should I not do it? Should I go forward? Should I stop? Is this, is this the right thing for me to be doing? And we don't realize that we're adopting this whole model of kind of the one right thing. And, and with should written in large kind of glowing neon letters over the top. You know, that this is what you should be doing. And therefore, if you're, you know, if it's the wrong thing, if it's if it's what you shouldn't be doing, then you're missing the point, and your energies are being used in a in a misguided way. This is not the right thing for me to be doing. So what I would like to to, to point to is that is sort of from the Buddhist perspective, one needs to back off from that whole construction, and to to look at what the, the presumptions that we're making that there is this sort of one mysterious right path, you know, buried under the under the floorboards of your life, that that we're, we're trying to track, and that the the Buddhist model is not that sort of fatalistic or deterministic that there is one right thing to to be doing, one right partner or one right job, but more um, that um, there's an infinity in each moment. There's an infinity of possibilities. So. Um, Generally, we think in terms of um, I make a choice, and then if it's if it works out well, if we get a good result, if we if we get what we wanted, then that means I'm on the right path. I got what I was expecting. This is good. And then if it doesn't work out, and I make a choice, and I follow something, and it and it all goes sour, and people hate me, and everything falls apart, then that's bad, right? Okay, is this familiar. <laughs> so. Um, but then what happens is that, to our amazement, something that is like a complete disaster, the worst thing has happened, but then out of that, then somehow, mysteriously, you know, some, something good emerges. And you think, oh, look at that, that's strange, how could that be? Right? 
And then occasionally when everything goes well and it's all marvelous and good and you get the prize and the project works and, and, and everything kind of falls into place, and then 10 years later you realize, that was the worst thing that ever happened to me. You know, that, that, that thing working, that thing going well, it seemed like it was a great idea at the time, but you know, that really got me off on this totally pointless track. And that, um, hmm, you know, even though it was good, the way I handled it, the way I picked it up, the way it went from there, it turned into this whole great package of difficulty. So this is a rather long way around of saying that there is nothing which is intrinsically and wholly good or which is intrinsically and wholly bad. It's really how we handle each situation as we experience it. So that um, in this moment, there's a, a, a huge variety of things. Like right now, there's a, there isn't a right thing for me to be saying. There isn't a right thing for you to be doing. I mean, I could suddenly say, you know, pink giraffe elbow uh, April 45, 22. And you say, what? <laughs> See, but in the point of my Dhamma talk, then this is the right thing to be saying. Even though it's complete gibberish. <laughs> it's a good enough thing. So that we, uh, um, we make our choices. And then um, we... We, uh, from the Buddhist perspective, so we make our choices in each moment so based on um, you know, memory of what has gone before, you know, the idea of a, of a goal that we're aiming at, um, our sensitivity to the time and place and the situation. We make our best choices guided by these different influences, by kindness, by compassion, um, by intelligence, by memory, by sensitivity to the situation. Then... Uh, an initiative, a, a motivation arises, and then there's action taken upon that motivation. And then, uh, as I mentioned last week, then there's this quality of vimangsa, or reviewing, seeing what the results are of, of what we experience. So, we, uh, rather than there being one right path, we make the best choice that we can in this moment, or the choice that is the <laughs> whatever the dominant impulse was. <laughs> we make you know, that, that choice, and we follow it. Um, say you know it's 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 a, yeah, as far as we know it's a it's fits what we want to do and it's directed towards a particular goal and then and then we look and see well did that work How, what's the effect of this did that was that helpful is someone are they smiling at me <laughs> is this person glad that I'm visiting them or is this is this you know did the project succeed did the things did the building stay up you know is this person yeah, feeling good about their life. Oh, okay, we call this, okay, this feels like success, okay? Be informed by this. So this would suggest, okay, take another step in the same direction. Or, um, or if it works well, and it's a success like that, then it's like, okay, well, that worked well, so um, let's take another step in the, in the same direction, but let's also be aware that this you know, might not be intrinsically and absolutely good. Let's just not assume that this is going to be, you know, that all this brings is going to be good. Let's, let's consider, okay, well, this looks like a good step to take. Um, let's, let's see what happens. Let's consider what else is involved. Or if it goes badly, you know, that um, the, the thing that you're working for just causes more trouble, it's, uh, you know, there's more kind of pain and difficulty and, 
and uh, alienation, saying, oh, that didn't work, that's a disaster. Okay, now I'm, I learned from that. So this has brought me here. So now I know that that didn't work. So that's not a bad thing. It's like one of the first rules of lab science is that there's no such thing as a bad experiment. Is that, you know, if, it, if the experiment doesn't work, that tells you. That tells you something, regardless of whether the, you know, the, the reaction went right or not. So that from the Buddhist perspective, there is, there is no absolutely right or absolutely wrong outcome. That there's this potential, whether it works well or works badly, for us to, um, to use each situation. So sometimes when we, and I certainly know this feeling, like when we, we make some choices and we, we do some things and it, and it goes terribly wrong, we, we, think, oh, we get into the self-flagellation mode, right? Oh, I'm so stupid, I'm so helpless, I can't do anything right, this is, I tried so hard and it all fell apart and it didn't work. And, yeah, and, but instead of, uh, of letting the mind go into that, um, to be able to say, okay, well here we are now, we're out in the middle of the highway, we're surrounded by broken glass, <laughs> we've just sort of woken up in the middle of this, okay, now, now what? Where to from here? What can, how can we work with this situation? What's the, the, the best way forward from this? And what, what's, what has this taught me? What's the best way forward that I can see from this? So that this, um, we, can, uh, we can therefore um, use this way of, of going through life. And so we, we're taking a much more measured uh, approach towards the results of our, of our actions. So that whether things work kind of well or, or badly, that they, they equally inform us. And so that if things go well, we don't get drunk on that or think it's an absolute good. We say, okay, in, this, in the terms of this, this is good. But let's just see the bigger picture as we go. And if it works badly, then it's okay, well, we learned about that. And that's, uh, so that what can be done from this? And as, and as often the case, uh, many times the very best things come out of the situations that we would never, what we call the disasters or the, the, or the things that didn't work, when the, when the disease is proved to be you know, uh, incurable, when the situation can't be helped, then we have to draw upon resources within ourselves to find um, uh, qualities that were not readily there, readily available at the surface. We have to, in some, t- some cases, be broken open by difficulty, by, by obstruction and pain, to, to find uh, a kind of a, a deeper reality, a deeper possibilities that we didn't know were, were there. So, so in making choices, um, and then what we choose to do, like last week I, I, I think I was saying a little bit about um, that trait that we have of you know, helping others so that we will stop feeling bad ourselves. You know, like, <laughs> I want to help you because, <laughs> because uh, it, I'm feeling so bad, so that then me helping you ameliorates that, that uncomfortable feeling in me. Uh, which is, you know, we, we covered that a, quite a little bit last week, I think. Another of the things I thought to, to bring out, when we try, when we do follow these, when we take action and we uh, pursue a particular path of trying to be helpful and doing some kind of good work and, 
and supporting others, helping others, that um, we're, and I think also last week I talked a little bit about idealism and the way that we tend to place the ideal at the center and then have the reality off at the periphery. Did I talk about that? Yeah, I think so. And so that uh, one of the things is when we, act, when we take action, what, what we, can, we can find is that the, judgment, the inner critic is so active that, that just because it wasn't absolutely, totally perfect and that the situation wasn't completely and utterly rendered beautiful and peaceful and, and harmonious and com- total uh, radiant health was not restored, <laughs> then we think, I failed. I got it wrong. This, I didn't, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeless. I, I can't. It's no point me trying. This is a disaster. And so that um, that's a perfectionist streak that we have can really disable an enormous amount of what we do. Because even though 99% of what we're, what we're aiming at and what we're trying to do is, is, uh, is successful and works well and is beautiful and is actually marvelous, uh, uh, the way that our attention in the West tends, tends to be trained, and I speak from personal experience, <laughs> probably for many of us here, is that the 1% is the only thing that matters, right? The one flaw. When you, you paint a beautiful picture and then there's this kind of one little, the shape of the right ear is not quite right. Then all your attention goes to the right ear. <laughs> and that's all you can see. Like a... Um, I, when my, my mother passed away this year, and uh, one of the um, uh, I brought one memento I brought back with me was a, a little sculpture that she made. She was a, a, a sculptor when she was younger. She made this little figurine when she was about eighteen, nineteen, and it's exquisitely beautiful. It actually looks like Guan Yin, even though she had no connection with Buddhism as a you know a. Uh, a, 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 a girl living in North London in, in the 1930s, but she made this little figure, and it's exquisitely beautiful. And um, and so, uh, I, I w- when I was talking with her about it um, uh, earlier this year, and she said, "Well, the hands are all wrong, <laughs> and uh, and the ear, and the ears aren't the ears aren't right, and the hands are way too big." And and you know, I look at this thing. This is exquisite. This is amazing. You were 18. This is incredible. No, but the, but the hands, you know. <laughs> so uh, in Buddhism we have a, an, an, uh, an ancient aphorism which is 80% is perfect. 80% is perfect. In fact, 100% is bad taste. It's a sort of a, an addendum to that. But, but 80% is perfect. So this is not just a, a license to, to goof off and not, 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 not to do our best, but it's to, to recognize that how much we actually um, disable ourselves and, and, uh, and overlook the goodness that is truly present because of that our actions are indeed being truly effective, but because we have this perfectionist streak that is kind of absurdly idealistic, that we are, we are overlooking and, and kind of souring the, the mixture because of expecting 100% and feeling if it's less than that that it's, it's, it's bad and it's wrong and, and hopeless. So that I would really like to encourage that when we're, we're, we're acting on things and we're trying to help others and when we, we make the choices that we do that 
you know, 80% is perfect. In fact, you know, in some in some fields, that's extraordinarily good. Like, in, uh, as I understand it, I'm not a baseball expert, but if if a bat, if uh, if um, someone who is a the uh, uh, had a, a a record of 80% hits, I think Venerable Jody Parlow might inform me that would be way way in excess of the average. 30% is 35% is uh, you're a, you're a big hitter, and 80% would be like way over the top. So. <laughs> so sometimes that can be extraordinarily good. But, even, but so when the critical mind is saying this is, this is no, there's no point in this, then to, to step back from that and to say, well, hey, <laughs> in some fields even 35% is great. You know, yeah. A third of the, the things that I'd like to... to bring up in terms of the actions that we do. One of the motivations that we can find when we're, when we're sort of pulled towards choosing what to do and how to help, and, and again, I found this a very, very strong influence in my life, is what are they going to think about me? How do I want to be seen? This, <laughs> again, a little familiar to some of us. <laughs> and... Uh, and I had it was actually here in Ukiah that I had a very a very powerful insight about this uh, this uh, just a few months ago. And I was at the memorial for Seiji Sugawara, who's probably known to uh, many people in this room. You'd probably most of you have sat on boards, <laughs> or directors with him, or been involved in various projects. So Seiji was a, a um, he passed away very suddenly uh, this this year. And he was um, Mr. Good Cause of Mendocino County. He was like at least a dozen, maybe 15 different boards of directors he was on for an incredible number of things. Um, for the uh, performing arts space, and he was on the board of supervisors for a while. He was part of the Inland Mendocino Land Trust. He was part of the uh, various different programs for itinerant um, farm workers and, and providing low-cost housing and all kinds of things. So, you know, as people know, Mendocino County is a thinly populated place. There was like four or five hundred people at his memorial service in, in Ukiah. And, um, and it was just like one after another, these eulogies of people standing up about how amazing, how good it was to work with him, how helpful he was, how kind. How... So he's sort of Mr. Compassion, Mr. Compassionate Action of Mendocino County. And I was sitting there being kind of, wow, this guy, really, I, mean, I knew him a little bit. He, he spoke up for us at our planning hearing. I knew him a little bit. I thought, wow, this guy is incredible. How amazing. And how, how wonderful. But the, the thing that really struck me was a certain exchange that was recounted by the woman who was the, the founder of the Inland Mendocino Land Trust. And she said that one day she and her husband and... and uh, and Seiji and, and his wife were sitting down for dinner and they were, had just been bringing about some sort of uh, part of their program had come together and, and, and she made this comment over dinner. Uh, well, Seiji, you know, you're really leaving quite a legacy here in Mendocino County. And she said he practically leapt across the table at her and said, it's not about leaving a legacy. That's not it. And she said... You know, she was really shocked by this. Then he was this incredible vehemence um, behind it. And uh, he said, it's not about leaving a legacy. It's about doing the right thing now. 
And um, this uh, struck me so powerfully because I realized how much I think in terms of what you know, what I want, what I'm leaving behind, what people will think of me. Oh, this is a good thing. You know, not as though you, you you think of it in terms of this will score points, but <laughs> but there's something that is saying, oh yes, well you know I've, I've written that book and at least I did this good thing and you know and and it's not as though we just are consciously doing stuff so that 500 people will show up at our funeral. <laughs> but there's a certain like. Well, if I was, if I had kind of left this lot behind, then I would have, this, this would be a good thing. And it was what really struck me was that it was obvious that Seiji had thought about this, contemplated it a lot, and realized, yes, there's a certain flush that you get of, of that kind of praise and affirmation and people glad that you do this. And they say, how wonderful, how marvelous, how good. And he obviously seen the kind of, that wasn't it really. It wasn't about being flattered or being praised or or being the one who did it. Being or you know, be, it's not a matter of being known as the one who did it. The important thing is the kids have this space for their performing arts. The, the point is that these people have houses. The point is that this land is preserved. That's it. it doesn't give, it doesn't matter who's the one who catalyzed it. So uh, uh, you know, I've been really impressed how much that teaching has stayed with me. <laughs> in the last few months. And I'm really, really glad the woman told that story because it just keeps flashing out to me. Like, you know, because I, how many times I think during the course of a day in those terms. And then it's like, it's not about leaving a legacy. It's not a matter of who leaves it behind. It's not a matter of whose name is on it. And, and also, not only that it reveals that, but also it helps us to leave that aside and, and say, well, basically it's not about what you're known for. Even though the ego might you know, have a sense of affirmation and flush, being flushedness because of that, but it's how, what is the right thing to do now, and how does this help others? Because it really clarifies the motivation, and it helps for that self-centered, um, point-scoring, little, you know, <laughs> well-meaning character from from taking over the action that we're, we're trying to take. It makes the whole thing a lot more open and pure. So I was really, really grateful um, for that, that particular uh, realization. And it continues to inform me. So I thought it would be a very important thing to, to pass on this evening. So then in terms of kind of practices that we can do so then you're thinking, yeah, well, you know, the whole evening is titled, What Do I Do Now? Isn't the guy going to tell me? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I want to know, I want a list, you know. What should I do now? I, you know, and even if he doesn't do anything, say, talk about it in the talk, I've got my, you know, I'm going to catch him and corner him afterwards and say, look, okay, <laughs> I've got this particular issue I need to be sorted out, and, and I want you to tell me. Well, uh, my teacher, Ajahn Chah, had this... Um, he had this way of, uh, extraordinary way of, when people came to ask him, my, th- my understanding of Thai was very rudimentary, but I, could, uh, but I could see the pattern of what was happening and I could follow it to a, to a certain extent. What would happen over and over again was that people would come and they'd ask him questions and then he would like, take the question and then dismantle it and sort of hand back the, the pieces to the, 
to the the, the questioner, and then uh, and then enable them or show them that they actually knew how to put it back together again, or that they they could by uh, holding the pieces they could see where the question came from. Or maybe a better way of describing it is to say he would start a, a discussion with them and he would lead them back to where the question came from. And then before too long, the person had answered their own question. And I saw this happening over and over and over again and I said, how does he do that? <laughs> does, he, does he only do that with the people that, you know, that, that with certain people? And, and uh, how, how can that be the case that every single time that people are able to satisfactorily answer their own questions when they, they come sometimes with a terrible doubt, like, I, I don't know, I don't know, please help me, help me, help me, what am I going to do, what am I going to do? And, and every time it seemed that there was this inexorable pathway that he could lead people through to where they would, they would find, they would figure out for themselves, they would answer their own doubt. And then uh, he said this really extraordinary thing, which was when, when uh, he was asked, well, how do you do that? And he said, well, if you, you couldn't formulate the question unless you actually already knew the answer. The very fact that we can even pose the question means that something in us actually knows what the answer is. But because that's buried, we, uh, uh, under all of our thinking and confusion and ideas and, and fears and hopes and desires, then that, that intuition is, uh, is, is hidden from us. So it's just a matter of beginning with a question and following it back where it came from, and lo and behold, there's the answer. <laughs> that might sound very unconvincing. But uh, it's, it's a process that we can, we can all follow. Because it's not just a matter of, well, it's great if you've got this sort of super-duper guru out front who can do that for you. But, <laughs> but the fact is that we can do this for ourselves. So the particular meditation I thought we'd do this evening in a little while involves this uh, actually as if you, know, you are consulting your own oracle. You are going to your own sort of... Uh, teacher, if you like, your sort of inner, uh, basically going to your own inner wisdom, your own intuitive wisdom, the faculty of your own heart, which truly understands things. And uh, so by uh, concentrating the mind to a point of, of steadiness and stillness, and then when the, with a, a minimum of, of distraction, then to ask oneself that kind of question. So if there is some particular uh, issue or tangle in your life or particular doubt or uncertainty, then to clearly and consciously ask that, kind of drop that question into the heart. And this is not just thinking your way to a conclusion by logic. It's not, it's not using reason as much as, as intuition. You're drawing upon that in you which is intrinsically uh, connected to the whole uh, natural order. Does that make sense? That the, the, your heart is uh, the fundamental nature of our own heart, our own mind, is the same as the fundamental nature of all things. It's all part of nature. So, say, drawing upon and, and uh, tapping into that fundamental nature, then um, 
and then coaxing that forth or inviting that, that forth, then that can arise in terms of an uh, insight or an understanding. But sometimes what happens when we do this is that when we ask ourselves that question, so what should I do about such and such? Then what arises is wrong question. <laughs> or, or what can uh, uh, you know, arise can be an immediate sense of like, get out now. <laughs> or, or it might be, don't know. And I, and I think we've touched on this before a few times, but it's really helpful to, to, to really let this in, that sometimes we can't know. It's not just a matter of doing more thinking to figure it out. It's just, at this moment, we can't know. So just to be ready to, to say, ah, well, I can just leave it for the time being because it's not knowable right now. We'll just have to wait. It's like, you know, what's the... You know, when the bread hasn't risen, the, the yeast has got to do its thing. You can't just think, oh, well, this is, you know, <laughs> I'll just take it as it is now. It's like, well, no, it's not going to be bread. It's just going to be this, this kind of t- ghastly lump. It's not going to be bread. You have to wait for the yeast to do its thing, and then it's bread. <laughs> so sometimes we just have to wait. Another way of phrasing this um, that uh, Brother David Steindlrast would uh, use in, a, in one of his teachings was, so when you drop the question, the answer appears. And that when, you, when, um, when the phrase dropping the question means just letting the question sort of hover, uh, raising the question and letting it hover in our, in our awareness. So not trying to do anything with it, not trying to think your way to the to a conclusion, but just say, what should I do? What's the right thing to do here? And just let it float. And then just listening. Like we've been, a lot of the meditations that we've done have been about listening. And so it's really like listening to your own heart. Listening to that, drawing upon that intuitive wisdom of our own heart and listening to that. And the more that we practice this, the more that we, we begin to, to discern what the voice of wisdom is like and uh, distinguish that from the, the kind of voices of, of uh, preference and, and habit and, and desire and opinion and so forth. And uh, the last thing I thought to, to begin with and we can maybe talk a little bit more in terms of um, uh, details and such like towards the end of the evening. Was well, to, to to look at examples of, um, say, compassionate action within our, our lives, or what how we might you know, deploy our, our energies usefully. So we can we can talk a little later on in terms of things like. Um, Education, uh, or um, say environmental protection, or, or or how to relate to the political realm, and I, I thought that uh, just to, to give a little example, just to, to touch on this this zone, because there's really there's two domains where, in terms of compassionate action, there's either helping others directly, or helping people to help themselves. I mean, it's obviously, you can come up with many different dimensions, but broadly, that's, that's how it chunks itself to me. 
And so, um, one example I thought I'd, I'd mention is, um, say, in terms of, of the political world. Because in, uh, in Buddhist countries, it's, it's uh, often the case that the monastic order is forbidden to take sides politically. You're not allowed to vote for particular parties. And um, the reason why is so that the, the monastery be, is a, a spiritual resource for, for all, all beings. So if, you, if we're a green monastery, then you know, we have sort of big banners or vote for so-and-so outside the gate. That means that some, you know, some staunch Republican who might have you know, very uh, strong spiritual tendencies will think, Ugh, I'm not going to go there because they're opposed to me. So that um, in some countries it's a bit stricter than others. Thailand is this very, very, um, uh, they're very uh, re- uh, kind of strong and resolute to, to encourage that because they, the, the understanding is that everyone needs a spiritual direction, whatever their political preference might be. <laughs> and, um, that, uh, and that as soon as a, um, the... Uh, uh, say the the monasteries take sides, and you pretty soon have the the democratic monasteries fighting the republican monasteries, and <laughs> you know the, the socialist ones and the communist ones and the, and the capitalist ones, and so. But then you have this massive conflict within the, the monastic community going on as well. So that uh, seeing this work in in, in practice is quite a, a miraculous thing. In uh, in Thailand, a number of years ago, they uh, when there was a, an election coming up, they one evening they uh, dedicated all four TV channels to uh, um, this uh, senior monk who, who we know called uh, Lungpo Panyananda, um, and uh, he's a very well-known Dharma teacher. And uh, so that all everything that was on TV was him giving this hour-long Dharma talk, and he gave a talk about how to vote. <laughs> And he was—he was very clearly not not supporting any particular party, but what he was um, pointing to was like, well, take let, you know, what you want to be guided by is is honesty and virtue, and that uh, let's take you know the, when you when you're trying to choose which candidate to vote for, you know, look at what they do, how do they live their lives, you know, how many uh, casinos do they own. <laughs> What, what's their, how do they run their private life? What, what do they, yeah, what, what are their moral qualities? So it's like taking a, a, a different um, viewpoint um, on the whole political domain and seeing it rather than in terms of, uh, of nuances of policy, <coughs> but in terms of, of virtue. And so that... Uh, it was uh, it was very remarkable. People at that time were, were uh, very grateful for that because it was, it enables people to to be guided um, to uh, say make choices that are going to have a an intrinsically you know, helpful result. So that um, when uh, when we are say confronted with a choice, say a political choice like that, oftentimes. The attention goes to the fine detail of uh, of what agrees with your opinion, or, or um, you're trying to see this one as all bad and this one as all good. But oftentimes, it's our, our own 
moral sense is being clouded. And um, it can be a, a helpful way to, to recognize that you, know, you can support something, support some cause, some, some candidate, some party, but yet um, the way that you do that can be very divisive in yourself. Very, and, and very kind of, you get a lot of sense of, of uh, aversion, hatred for the opposite, for the other. And so that if you see that what you're wanting to do is you're wanting to support virtue, you're wanting to support honesty, you're wanting to support integrity ra- you know, as, a, as a main thing, and then uh, you're doing that via backing up this particular candidate, then that's, mu- then that's much uh, uh, different than, say, saying um, this one's right and we have to oppose that one. This one's good and that one's bad. And making this kind of um, rigid division along, along pol- lines of policy and um, political philosophy. Because what so easily happens in our own good intentions get swept up by aversion, fear, hatred, resentment for them. You know, <laughs> those guys that we've got to beat. And then our own, our own good and noble intention gets swept up in, in that kind of contention and hatred and opposition. So that then, even though we might be supporting that something, something good, we've in a way lost our own virtue, our own kind of moral sense. We're kind of caught up in negative mind states whilst we're trying to do something that's good. So that um, you know, in, in this kind of um, respect, this is a bit of a long way around of, of uh, just talking about it, it's when we're applying these sort of c- principles of compassion, it's compassion for your own heart and your own being whilst you are pursuing that you know, external action so that you think, okay, we've got to get this guy in. To, to power, you know, this is the person that we got. You know, Barbara Boxer has got to be, <laughs> got to get her in. <laughs> that, uh, and so that then, okay, well, we want we want her to be in power, but uh, let's also take a look at what I'm doing to myself in helping that to happen. Let's let's look at how I am lo- looking at others as the opposition. How how am I demonizing others? Is and and so that we're surveying the whole picture and seeing that if we're, if we're consistent in practicing kindness and compassion and, and virtue, honesty, on, uh, on the level of relating to ourselves, on the way that we are relating to, to others, then we can support causes yeah, and do uh, good works. But we're not you know, bringing more harm into the system as we are pursuing that, that noble, uh, noble cause. So it's a, it's a, a, a complex uh, domain, but certainly that um, when we take the trouble to do that and we're guided principally by not just the virtue of the candidates, <laughs> but guided by that in the way that we relate, then that, that, that's a tremendously powerful thing because uh, as we've touched on a couple of times with these sessions, that um, we can... Um, so easily you know, lose that, that sense of true empathy for others in, the, in our pursuit of trying to do the right thing, right? <laughs> that, uh, and the most 
a helpful thing in terms of, of um, say, trying to do the right thing, say, in, the, in using this example of politics, is even though you, are, you refuse to, to hate, you, you, know, you're, you are guided by kindness and compassion, you refuse to hate the other, you know, the, the opposition, the opponent to your, to your party, the person you don't want to get voted in, you, you are practicing kindness and compassion, empathy towards them, but you still uh, can, you know, vigorously work to do everything you can to stop them getting voted in. <laughs> Does that make sense? So that, the, and this is what I, I would really like to encourage, is like it's a, a capacity that we have to love someone completely, yet if we see they're acting harmfully, to you know, oppose them with every ounce of our, of our energy, of our strength. Similarly with, with you know, environmental protection or with education, that, um, that just not, not to let our, our effort to, to, to do this or to oppose that uh, get caught up with, with hatred and and uh, desire, but to see that there's a, a manner that we can find whereby these qualities um, and that there's a, are informing all of our actions, and that there's a way of being that we can tap into, whereby that uh, that quality is is present in in all that we do. So we can have a meditation period now, if you want to just stretch your legs for a second, and then um, do I have a bit more air in here, Mary? It's kind of steamy, <laughs> tropical. Yeah, thank you. That's, that's just me with a fever. The whole... Let yourself settle down and um, find a, a sitting posture so that the, the body is held upright, the spine is firm and tall, not to be rigid or tense, but just reaching to uh, to its natural full extension lending a quality of alertness and uh, attentiveness And with the spine as the central column, just letting the rest of the body relax gently and naturally around that. Just relaxing the muscles of the face, neck and shoulders.
letting the stomach, the abdomen soften. Be free from tension. Let it spread. Our thighs and lower legs, hip joints. Just letting the whole body be at ease, settled. Just feeling the presence of the body here in the space of our awareness. sensations of the body, just bring the attention to focus upon the feeling of the breath. Not trying to change the breath to make it longer or shorter or deep or shallow. Feeling the body breathing according to its own rhythm, its own nature. Studying the, the pattern of the breathing, the sensations of the breath. Be here at the very center of our attention. The very center <coughs> of this great field, this vast field of awareness. Placing the breath, the very center. Just letting the easy flow of the breath calm the mind. Let go of the trains of thought that arise.
just letting everything be settled and open and clear. Sounds come and go, feelings in the body, waves of thought might pass through. Just let them arise and disappear. using the rhythm of the breath just to keep focusing our attention on this present moment.
as the attention settles more steadily in the present, you can feel the rhythm of the breath here in this great open space of our awareness. Around the edges we might also hear the sounds of the street and sounds of this room. Feelings in the body. Now whenever you find that the attention is stable, clear, the firm sense of of openness, inner spaciousness. If there's a particular question, an issue in your life, or a decision to make, a conflict needing some kind of response, whatever it might be, some larger social issue or a very personal <coughs> relationship, where we feel our, our kindness, our compassion is, is called for. Just to bring that, that particular issue into consciousness and without getting involved in a lot of the stories, just to bring that to mind and to raise the question, what should I do? Or how should I respond? Whatever phrasing suits us most appropriately, when the, that quality of spacious, open attention is established, just drop that question in. Drop it into the heart. And see what arises from that. Letting the question just hang in the space of the mind. See what arises.
maybe what arises is another question, such as if I ask, what should I do about such and such? Maybe the question arises, well, it depends what you want. So then to clarify that, well, I want so-and-so to not suffer, but I also want them to be aware of their own fearful tendencies, whatever it might be. So we're using this reflective capacity Our intuitive capacity of the heart if you find the mind is rapidly getting caught up in strings of thought and ideas and racing here and there, just go back to the breath and help things to settle down again at the internal spaciousness be re-established. And when that's firm and steady once again, bring up the question. So what should I do?
Well, please feel free to um, ask any questions or bring uh, anything up for discussion. Um, I'm always a little wary knowing that some people are not so familiar with meditation practice sort of um, sometimes particular techniques or methods sort of require a little bit more um, experience or or, or, uh, firmer background than others but uh, anyway I hope this is uh, useful for some people and uh, but any anything that you want to ask about the meditation or about um, anything that I was saying earlier this evening please feel free this is the last of these sessions on this particular theme so do uh, uh, take advantage Mary Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think it ties in with what you're saying tonight. But um, you talked a little bit about psychic numbing and the difference between that and listening. Mm-hmm. And I know there's a huge difference, but sometimes what well, it just seems like um, when I was on a long retreat, you know, I remember looking around and. and you know, having like hundred people around me, and at, at every, every every day somebody was be in tears. You know, and it was fine. It was just what was happening. And, you know, after a while I thought, well, gosh, you know, we're just big balls of tears. That's all. We <laughs> and and it's just that we cover all that up. And um, you were, you were talking about. Um, you know, we use that listening meditation and looking at things as if we were listening. And I find that very attractive, but I also get a, a little nervous because you were talking about, um, you know, your friend who, who, whose wife made that kind of informed comment that when, when, when they were talking, um, he was always trying to fix whatever mm-hmm. it is or give answers, and he wasn't really listening. And, and, and with the listening meditation, I, 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 particularly in the sound meditation, I thought, wow, this is kind of cool. And, you know, it's like, oh, this feels actually kind of rather masculine, actually. <laughs> you know, there's this, this kind of detachment. And also there's this kind of uh, feeling of, yeah, this is, this, is, this is very nice, but at what point am I switching off? And at what point do I shut down? Mm-hmm. And at what point do we all shut down? Like, you know, what's happened this year, it's like, Thing that's I can really relate to people demonstrating and jumping up and down. And, you know, that I think there's a discussion in one, one sit where, where monks were burning themselves for the Viet, Vietnamese War, you know, that Vietnam War. And, and I can understand that, my heart understands that. And what I don't understand is why I shut down. What I don't understand is why. It feels like I and many others sort of don't do anything. And it's sort of like, well, where where is the listening (laughs) without completely detached? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, can you tell me what my question is? (laughs) (laughs) What I was going to say, did you did you try using the meditation to to look at that question? No, I had another go. 
<laughs> Only time for so much, right? <laughs> Hard to get through the whole list in ten minutes. But I, I have actually. It, it floats around, and I just think that it just seems like a very pertinent thing to this topic mm. of compassion. It's like, yeah, I mean, everything touches us. Mm. Well, it's it, it's a lot to do with. I mean, that that hardening of the heart is basically self-preservation. It's a survival tactic that you know we as living beings employ because there's only so much that we can deal with. It's just um, just exactly like you know if you're in an emergency situation, you're um, probably many people here have had some kind of major sort of physical trauma or or, um, or danger, and that. Um, they uh, and then in that situation, you know, you find yourself, you know, you're in the middle of a car crash, or that you're you're um, like a, Ajahn Sumedho often told the story of a friend of his who was out sailing in the when they were students in in Berkeley in the 60s. He was out sailing in the bay, and then his his yacht capsized, and and he was two you know there's two miles out from shore, in you know in sort of California coastal waters and he didn't have a wetsuit on suddenly he's in the water he's two and a half miles from the shore his boat is down and uh, and he said he became ex- completely calm and it's absolutely clear and he has one thought in his mind was swim there was no but I can't swim two and a half miles and it's freezing cold and the current's against me it was just swim Clear, simple. His body wasn't cold. He had no doubt, and he just uh, swam. And then when he, he got to the shore, he, he climbed up on the beach, and then just completely crumpled. It was just it was convulsed with tears and and and, and terror and grief for, for a long time. But during the swim, it was just like okay. Just and it was very. He said it was very calm and peaceful the whole time, and that that's what happens. You know, the endorphins kick in, and we don't think, and that the system is is protected. It's like you, pain. Pain is no longer relevant. The worst has happened. <laughs> so switch that off, and you know, incredible resources of strength can be can be summoned forth. So in a similar way, it's just that. The the heart self-protective mechanism. Okay, this is this is as much pain as I can deal with. Okay, chunk, down it comes. But you know there is also some damage being done in that. Just as you know when you're the, you're you're swimming two and a half miles through freezing water, you know there's an incredible amount of exertion being expended and and stress on the body. That's just, but we can't afford to feel that because of the need to survive. So. Uh, and this question comes up very often um, and so that one of the most important things uh, in aspects of, of meditation practice and this is a, I quote this uh, you know, very very regularly is uh, one of Ajahn Chah's teachings was 70 or 80% of the practice is knowing that you should let go and not being able to so 
what, what that is pointing to is like in the, the four foundations of mindfulness, the third foundation of mindfulness is called, the, is called chitanupasana, or contemplation of mind states. And that might sound a little bit technical, but what, when the Buddha describes it, it says, knowing the angry mind is angry, knowing the mind free of anger is free of anger, knowing the concentrated mind is concentrated, the, mind, the, uh, the scattered mind is scattered, knowing the expanded mind is expanded and the contracted mind is contracted. So mindfulness doesn't mean to say never being angry. It doesn't mean never being contracted. It doesn't mean never being distracted. It's, there's that capacity to know what's going on. It's not saying, oh, anger's a good thing, don't worry about it. Or distraction is a good thing, don't worry about it. It's like the, the path to, to liberation and you know, the fulfillment of our lives is oh, this is the angry mind, this is what anger feels like, this is distraction, this is what it feels like. And in this instance, oh, this is, this, is the sh- this is the shutdown, this is numbness. Because to know that we're numb is really different from just being numb. And what we find is, is that we, and the more that we practice, is that the, the more we're able to, even when that numbing is happening, we know that we're doing that, but we say, well, look, I know this is happening, and I know this is what this, where this is coming from, and I know this is a thing that's happening. I can't overrule it with an act of will, but the, the path to, to liberation and to you know, that quality of um, transcending those limitations is to know, at least, well, at least I know this is happening. And that's the curative element. That's what enables us more and more fully just to be with what's going on and not getting caught into that hardening our heart or kind of frantic reactivity or whatever it might be. So that I, I don't think we should resent our self-defensive mechanisms. I mean, it's really good that we can, the endorphins are great, you know, psychological ones or physiological ones. <laughs> I mean, denial is not a bad thing. I mean, we, we have that capacity to get us you know, to, through many things in life. It's part of the natural order, so that you know. But at least if the if we know that there's a shutdown happening, just as a an emergency procedure, then it's you, you don't take that as normal, or you don't find a way of justifying it and saying this is good, this is fine, this is this is great. I'm is this I'm absolutely okay. It's like no, this is a stressed state. This is a reaction to the system under pressure. You know, this is you're not trying to dress it up to be something that it isn't, but you're also seeing, yeah, but this is this is natural. This is we we need this, so that sometimes we, th- you know, particularly in California, denial is a terrible thing. <laughs> but then it's like, if I'm going to have an operation, I want an anaesthetic. Thank you very much. <laughs> you know, if you're going to have if you're going to have surgery. I think you'd be rather, you know, rather glad to be unconscious, right? <laughs> Please, right? <laughs> and so, yeah, most of the time I really want to be conscious, but there's, you know, there's certain times, you know, like, like I, I had an operation on my neck, I've got this uh, four-inch long scar on my neck here. I'm, I'm glad that I wasn't there for it. <laughs> you know, there's a bunch of people kind of cutting, you know, sticking knives into my neck and fiddling around with my nerves and opening up all the muscles. And like, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to not be conscious at that point. So it's, it's, it's really important to not 
not you're not worshiping unconsciousness like I want to be numb the whole time but you're recognizing yeah that's the, the, uh, the a certain stage of our development and that's extremely helpful and then the more that we understand how it works and the more that we're just not slipping into that as a you know an all-purpose reaction to anything so that we are we're not um, creating a false distance we're actually truly able to listen where there's a, a full empathy but non-suffering which is also part of the, these teachings like the karuna, compassion it's, it really exists as part of the complex of the four sublime abidings there's loving kindness, compassion sympathetic joy and equanimity the four of them are all they function together really so to, to extract this compassion from the four is, you, know, you can do it but it's also like that quality of equanimity upeka is actually is in a way the most sort of, is that's the final word of the teaching it's like an upeka is that equanimity is not indifference it's it's like in the face of, of infinite quantities of turbulence there is that in us which uh, can be still that's attuned but is not wobbling Does that make sense you're looking a little furrowed <laughs> so I said a lot of things this evening, but if there is any if you, any questions or things that I brought up at the beginning, or I'm sort of yes. Uh, something that you brought up two weeks ago on the first meeting, you're talking about your father and how you know many many years after certain events happened, you reached certain understanding compassion understanding and that really stuck with me because um, I wonder how what is what are the benefit of practicing compassion to um, the deceased, somebody who is no longer there. Mm-hmm. What what techniques would you recommend? Uh say, you know, there's really lesson that I learned now about somebody that was in my life many years ago mm-hmm. say no longer there, I feel that it benefits me to to think about mm-hmm. about that person, but I wonder if I benefit that person. Mm-hmm. It's like a little too late. <laughs> <laughs> what do you say? Uh, I say it's never too late. <laughs> it's another one of the advantages of samsara being endless. <laughs> <laughs> it's never too late. <laughs> so that because at least from the, the Buddhist perspective is that um, you know even though that person might not be you know, immediately visible or you know you can't send them an email, um, they're, they're, some, they're, they're likely to be somewhere unless they're totally enlightened and off out of the system altogether. In which case you don't have to worry about them. But um, certainly uh, from my understanding of things that we can benefit. We can benefit others, whatever realm of being they happen to, to be in. And um, one of the Buddhist traditions is that of, of called, was called sharing of blessings or sharing of merit. And so just to um, uh, have someone's, uh, if you have a little shrine in your home, so a Buddha image, and, or a little, you want to make a special place, have a per, the person's picture, 
if you have a picture of them or, or some things that belong to them. Make a little altar, a little shrine, uh, um, and then to um, you can do a number of things. So first of all, you know, having their their picture up in a, a place of of respect and reverence, and and uh, in a, a a way that um, is sort of holding them in memory in a very positive light and then um, also to perform various kinds of generous actions say that if there's something say there's someone that was a, a friend of yours who was a, a school teacher or your father who was very into um, uh, animal protecting animals or whatever then say uh, making some offerings or helping to support a, a charity that was connected to what they were doing or if there was a um, a particular place that they liked to go going there and sort of helping out looking after doing voluntary work at that particular park or in that particular institution something that's close to their heart doing something that's uh, actively following along with what they would do were they alive and then dedicating that to them uh, oftentimes you see in in um, uh, in, in Buddhist monasteries, people have planted trees dedicated to others, um, often with their ashes sprinkled around, or um, or they'll have a little kind of memorial bench. Or I mean, like you see in in, Amer- in public parks, you know, benches set in places where you know old Susie liked to sit and have a, you know enjoy the view from here and uh, that kind of thing. Um, there's a they, you know, they're all over the world, those kind of little memorials. Also, uh, to if you have um, unfinished business, shall we say, and the things that you now realize, I really wish I'd, now I understand a bit better you know, where you were coming from, there's a few things I would like to have said to you. To, um, and, not, and also, it's, it's kind of a, a, like a psychological maneuver, but it's also... Um, there's almost certainly ways that it benefits the other person as well but actually going through like a little uh, ceremony of asking for forgiveness recognizing and that the way we do this the, the, the customary way is to, to say by body, speech or mind um, if there's anything that I've done or said intentionally or unintentionally that's been hurtful to you then I ask for your forgiveness and um, and also, you know, you can say, you know, if you were alive, I will be saying this to you now, but, you know, as you're not in this this particular world or in this particular form, then I just uh, put this out to the universe and that if this reaches you, all well and good, and if it doesn't, then at least it's, it's uh, helpful for me to articulate this. And sometimes it, people, the, the more sort of rationalist um, type of Buddhists, the ones who don't like ideas of past and future lives in different realms, they say, pah, this is sort of sharing merit, this is all superstition, this is kind of blind um, uh, uh, belief, and the Buddha never taught anything like that. But actually he did. There are there's some passages in, in the Pali canon, and I'm sure in the other sutras, that the Buddha explicitly describes how that works like creating good karma and dedicating that to the, to the memory and to the name of, of others. 
And as far as, uh, as his teaching goes, he said it genuinely benefits it, it, through whatever mysterious ways that good karma can actually benefit to some, in some way, shape, or form, to some degree, that being whatever realm they're in, whether you know, that's your, you know, your mother's been reborn and she's off living in Puerto Rico or in Kansas or, <laughs> you know, or wherever, or, or off in some deva world or whatever realm of being, that the, uh, the message gets through. And the, the understanding is that it just takes to remember the name or the face or just the setting the intention. That's enough of, a, of an address, you know, the, the, it'll get there. <laughs> and it, and if, you know, if, you have a tr- if you have trouble believing in that, that's fine. But just you, you, re- you recognize <coughs> that just to arouse that intention and to act on it, clarifying those um, motivations within yourself and, and forming those expressions has a, a, goes a long way to working out a lot of that sort of unfinished um, business within ourselves. It helps us to let go of that and let it end uh, in, in many ways. So, you know, whatever what form inspires you to, to follow that through. <clears throat> so I'm interested to know, did, did, did it make sense what I was saying about the uh, sort of infinite possibilities and the, the kind of going against the fatalistic, <laughs> determinist, uh, my true path mm-hmm. idea? Is that... Is there a feeling of relief that goes with that? <laughs> yes and no. Yes and no. <laughs> yeah, because that's it, a good response, because it is yes and no, because it's like, oh dear, it's up to me. Yeah, <laughs> the shifting path. Yeah, the infinitely shifting path. It's like, a, <coughs> it's a, it's like a infinitely branching from each step, there's an infinite number of branches. When we get to the end, when we look, when we're out on the on the remote twig, and we look back, we see this inexorable track. See, I had to end up here. It's, it's, it had to be this way. I look back down my life, and this extraordinary sequence of events brought me here. It had to be this way. It was like, yeah, but if you were on the end of any of the other billion twigs around the tree, you look back each one, and each one there's an inexorable connection to the trunk. Because when we look back, we see this chain. But actually, <laughs> there's billions of twigs we could have ended up at. So, then that's really the flavor of, of the Buddhist path and the understanding of life. That, yeah, it's, it makes life it's more realistic, but it's also more demanding. Like I, I said before, it's, this is not a comforting religion. It's not like, don't worry, it'll all be all right in the end. It's like, well, maybe. Maybe yes, maybe not. It, just, <laughs> it depends on you. <laughs> you know, if, if, we, if, we, if we do the right things, then it'll be all right. If we don't, it won't. <laughs> and uh, a lot of people think, ooh, no, please, Ajahn Amaro, I come here for you to tell me it'll all be all right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but th- that's, that's actually a cruelty to say that. To me, that's, it's, it's not kind to say, don't worry, it'll all be all right. It's like, yes, well, it might be all right, 
but if we but if we make the you know, unskillful choices and we we create karma that causes more confusion for ourselves and others, it, it won't be all right. <laughs> there'll be bits of all right, but there'll be bits of of nasty and, and, and decidedly unall right. So it's a it's a sort of ultimate realism that um, so it's more demanding in that way, but also. Um, it's uh, it's worth it. <laughs>